Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Gensler is looking for a CAD technician in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Dexcom is looking for a senior UX designer in San Diego, California. And Foundation Medicine is looking for an Associate Director of Design for their experienced design team in Boston, Massachusetts. If you're looking for remote work, check out these listings. OPS Group is looking for a dev and design superhero. MKG Design is looking for a digital slash print production designer. Turo is looking for a Director of Product Design as well as a Senior Product Designer. Development Seed is looking for both a cloud engineer and a junior cloud engineer. And Open is looking for a chief technology officer. Companies, stop making excuses on your DNI efforts and post your job listings with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you again so much for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I just want to talk about our sponsor for this episode, Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Let's get into this week's interview. I'm talking with Candace Queen, a multidisciplinary designer and the creator of Tabernacle Studio in Beaumont, Texas. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Candace Queen, and I'm a multidisciplinary visual creative. Um, I run a creative studio in Beaumont, Texas called Tabernacle, and I work to use design and creativity to build equity in Black communities and under service communities as well. Nice. Now, one thing I've been asking everyone, you know, over the past few months since I've been recording the show is, you know, how are you holding up during this pandemic? I'm actually really thriving. Mm. Initially, I would say I was very afraid. Just on a personal level, I have several health issues. And so knowing how all the different things that were coming about with COVID And then, of course, on the business side, I initially focused on events when I started my studio. And so having all the events get canceled, it really just put me in a a minor state of panic. No, it was a big state of panic. I won't lie to myself. And once I got over that hump and really started like absorbing all the IG lives and conversations with influencers and people I really respected and admired. It really served as a source of motivation 
And and going from there, I just started to strategize, you know, how would I come out on the other side of this a whole lot stronger? And so I'm really comfortable and proud of the pivot that I'm making right now. I'm really thankful for the extra time I've been able to spend with my family, whether that be, you know, on Zoom calls, because right now the only person who can actually see me in person is my sister. It's taken a turn that I didn't know I needed, and it's actually helped me in the long run. That's really good. That's good to hear that you've been kind of thriving during this time. I know that I think a lot of people were really, you know, kind of panicked at first because we didn't Mm -hmm. know how serious this was going to be, you know, things were getting locked down and, and different states had different levels of kind of government, some sort of government uh, mandate about whether you should stay in shelter in place or anything like that. But I can see, especially like for entrepreneurs, and like you said, you were initially focusing on events, like, it's kind of not the best time to be doing events during a time where we're not supposed to be getting together. So it's good that you were able to make that pivot. Yeah. And and I'm in Texas, so it is definitely a challenge because we tended we tend to be the more lax in terms of addressing everything. Uh-huh. And so it's starting to catch up with us holistically. Mm. But thankfully, you know, from a creative lens, a lot of what I do now is virtual. So that's been a big help. And I'm also really thankful that I actually made a move to a small town before all this happened because it's actually made it a bit easier to navigate too. I think I was in Chicago before and I think if I'd been stuck in Chicago far away from my family by myself, it would have been a whole nother story. Mm. Yeah. I'm in uh, Georgia right now. And certainly I know about the lax treatment. I think we had maybe about, maybe about three, three and a half weeks of shelter in place. And like now they've, well, they reopened things at the end of April. And now of course, cases have already kind of steadily been going up, but yeah, I know what you mean with that. Uh, what made you decide to kind of strike out on your own and start Tabernacle? So when I initially came into the ad industry, it wasn't like my, my plan. It wasn't, you know, something I strategically set out to do. I became interested in design and and just exploring creativity like way back in my space days. And I grew up in an oil and gas town. So that was the expectation was you either go to school like for engineering, medicine, legal, or maybe a teacher, but never, you know, was encouraged to pursue anything creative and definitely not advertising. And I also grew up in a very conservative Pentecostal household. So we we actually didn't have a TV, but I didn't see commercials unless I was like at a family member's house. I really didn't know anything about advertising. But once I got to college, I realized, you know, I took an elective in advertising and I realized I really wanted to pursue that. And as I began to study it, I didn't see many Black people in our curriculums. And so I started to research a lot about, you know, historical black figures in advertising. One person who really inspired me was Carolyn Jones. And she started, you know, several agencies on her own. And so from there, my goal became going to get in advertising, get a good job at an agency, learn the ropes, and then create my own. And my goal has always been to figure out how to use advertising and branding essentially to help shift the perception one of black people 
and then the perception we also have of ourselves and in an effort to really stimulate, you know, economic success, personal success, and then also look at, you know, areas that have either been abandoned, that have really, you know, deteriorated, and how can I use branding and design and rebuild those areas? So that was really the foundation that birthed Tabernacle. I also had a really big passion for creating events that connected people from the online communities in person. So growing up, I was also a preacher's kid and I had like firsthand experience with navigating those connections and outreach and, and you know, building a community and being involved with the community um, of people. And that really transcended into my work and what I started to, you know, gravitate towards. So I love creating pop-up experiences creating digital communities, which evolved into my organization, Blacks in Advertising. And it's really just gone up from there because um, even now in the midst of COVID, there still is really big need to maintain the virtual communities. So with Tabernacle, you know, we pivoted away from just the in-person experiences and creating, you know, some hope in the midst of the virtual communities and planning ahead, you know, Hope whenever we can get out of here, um, having some really amazing in-person experiences eventually. What has the first year of business kind of been like so far? So I officially went into business in September of last year. Oh. And we started off really, really um, fast. Before that, I had taken a year sabbatical. I resigned from my job in 2018, August 2018. And decided to take a sabbatical and really just regroup. Um, my dad had passed away the summer of 2018, really suddenly. And I was like, if, if there's never been a time, this is the time to you know go home, regroup, and make sure what I'm doing um, is intentional and I'm really valuing my time. So this first year, um, well, the first few months, because we're, we're still very shy of a year, yeah. um, has been assessing what type of client do I want to service and what kind of offerings are most authentic to me. And a third part has been a lot of unlearning, um, you know, not just trying to skin what I've learned in in the ad industry in general in that agency structure, um, but actually unlearning some things, you know, that I picked as a negative for the industry and making sure I didn't carry that into my business and how I operate it. Hmm. So um, I would even say like, instead of just having, you know, just traditional services um, another big piece I, and I want that I want to lean into in the future now is creating original artwork um, and then also just building out independent projects that clients could partner with in the long run. So it's definitely been just a, a lot of a lot of learning and unlearning um, and then adjustments in this period, because now we're shifting from just client services to including um, an educational component as well to make sure that we're addressing the needs of people in our local community who might not be able to, you know, afford the full budget, you know, for um, 
a larger project, but want to learn and want to take a more DIY approach to it. So that that's been the the first few months, and I'm really excited for what's coming up next. I have to say, you're taking on a lot in that first year. All of that sounds amazing. I, I when I was looking up the website and doing research for this interview, I came across this huge disclaimer. As soon as you go to the site, I just want to read part of it. Um, it starts, well, the part that I'm going to read starts off saying, we are 100% black owned. When working with us, you are working with a spectrum of women from the African diaspora and a diverse group of subcontractors when certain needs arise. We expect anyone who chooses to work with us to know that your value of us as individuals should be equal, if not greater than the value of our work. That is um, I, I told you before, I got stood up and clapped when I was reading this because this is, I mean, it, it's amazing to hear from, I think, any studio, especially from a black studio. But um, I know that I've talked to several entrepreneurs. I would even put myself in this in this kind of uh, box, too, is that sometimes there's this weird abstraction when you're kind of starting out on your own to not... To, to sometimes not appear too black in business. And I don't know if this is, you know, just a particular byproduct of the current, you know, time that we're in right now. But um, I've definitely, myself, as well as other people I know, like maybe when they start out their business, they'll abstract themselves away from it. So people focus just on the work. So you won't have your name or your picture up or anything to kind of let folks know, like, hey, I'm a black person behind this. They'll just have the work. And try to make it seem like they're this, you know, kind of opaque firm that's making all of this happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and you know, I think that's something that a lot of Black creatives struggle with initially is you don't always want to be saddled with the Black work, right? Yeah. You don't always want to be the go-to for everything Black. Um, you want to be able to do all the quote unquote, fun stuff, the exciting projects. So you don't want to just be the person they go to for the diversity inclusion work. And that it was something I struggled with because initially when I first came into the industry, there was a tug of war because I would work on my main client work. But then when the DEI department would come in and ask for support on certain things, there was a lot of tension between my team, my leadership, and, and doing that work to the point where, you know, recommendations would be made that, you know, maybe you should just transfer to the DEI department. Maybe, you know, being an art director, designer isn't for you. And they couldn't separate. They wanted to separate the two. But for me, you know, I'm like, this is who I am holistically. Yeah. And so it started to cast doubt on me. And it's like, well, should I distance myself from that work and not do too much of that? Um, and not publicize like, like too much about blacks and advertising because these people are looking at it as I don't know what I want to do. But, you know, I had to come to terms with the fact that I definitely knew what I wanted to do. I definitely had a passion for my community. Um, and because they didn't understand it, that wasn't really on me. That was on them to get better leadership experience, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I had to. Eventually, you know, I got laid off from that job and moved on. And the next step really taught me that, you know, I could be both, you know, that it was definitely something that was needed. I was pulled in on projects that were 
targeting, you know, the African-American market and they didn't even have a black creative, you know, in the office to work on certain things. And I started to see, you know, my tangible value there. And it wasn't just creating separate work just for black communities, but also seeing how that fit into the greater ecosystem of advertising and marketing and understanding that, you know, when you're working on that kind of work, it matters to the whole society that you're in Mm -hmm. because to see those images, they need to see new narratives because they're isolated, right? And so whatever they're consuming is shaping their perspective and their lens. And so from there, I was like, okay, this is really important. I don't need to get sidetracked from this. And if people feel like it's a negative, that's not on me, that's on them. And it takes a lot. And it's hard because if that's your nine to five and your bread and butter, it's hard to... For some, it's very hard to just make that move because you have to pay the rent at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And so for me, when I started Tabernacle, I wouldn't say I was opaque, but I was not very driven to, you know, like clearly reference, you know, my passion for racial equity. Mm-hmm. I wasn't for me, it was like, okay, I have my projects in the portfolio. Like when you see it, you see a lot of color. And so you should, you know, this is what you should anticipate. So coming in, I did make a calculated decision to strip a lot of my non-colorful work out, actually. So I had like a lot of what would be considered mainstream pieces from really big companies. But that wasn't the work I wanted to attract anymore. I wanted to attract more robust things that mattered to me. So that was what pushed me to go in that direction. I was about to ask, have you seen like a change in the types of, of people that contact you or the kind of work that comes in since putting up that notice on the site? I've started to receive more people asking for trainings and educational support right after like that first week in June, when things start to really get super hot. A person I'd worked with before Natalie Kim reached out to me and said, Hey, You know, you've supported me a lot on my platform. She runs a platform for young professionals coming into the ad industry called We Are Next. Mm -hmm. And she said, I really want to just give my platform up to you. Whatever you feel is needed, whatever you want to share, I'll just give you the passwords to all my stuff. You can get in there and do what you want to just tell me what do you want to do. And so I've always had a passion for education. I completed a master's degree in the with the goal, you know, to become an instructor at a college one day. And so I said, I want to teach some courses. I said, I want to do one course on designing a movement and just, you know, talk about creativity in print and how that impacted the civil rights movement. And then I also would like to give like a, a high-level intro course to blacks and advertising and just talking about the relationship between advertising and the black community post-slavery up until now. And so she's like, done. And so in doing that, um, it opened the door for this next pivot for Tabernacle, and that's creating an educational arm. We got a lot of great feedback on it, a lot of great responses on it. It wasn't planned. It wasn't something that when I decided I wanted to do education, that wasn't what I was going to teach initially. But seeing that need and seeing the response behind it, you know, lit a fire in me to continue the work. So I'm really excited, like, for what's next with that and just seeing those courses accumulated and just more 
ideally, you know, working direct with brands and agencies to actually bring that that education and those learnings into their offices. I mean, education, I think, is always important, especially when it comes to the client, because I think we, you know, as, as business owners, we want the clients that come to us to be well-informed about what it is they want and how we can work together. But nine times out of 10, that's not the case. The clients don't know. The clients mm-hmm. may have the end results in sight, but not necessarily the process to get there. Even when I was like taking clients in my studio, I found there was a lot of education I had to do just to make sure we were like on the same page, speaking the same terms, making sure that we just kind of had the same common language as it related to the projects. Cause I would say mock-ups and they're like, what, you know, <laughs> and, and maybe, you know, kind of what you're doing, it sounds like it's maybe not that cut and dry, but certainly I think being able to tie in the historical aspect of like, we've always been in this industry or we've always been doing design and how mm-hmm. it ties into like the work that we're doing now, I think is so important, especially for people that may not look at design that way. Now, granted, you know, everything around us has been designed, every experience, you know, the clothes we wear, the shoes we wear, the houses, apartments that we live in, et cetera. It's all Mm -hmm. some form of design has went into that. But I don't think, you know, a lot of people really know how important that is or what goes into that. And so I like that you're doing this education to to kind of make that happen, to kind of fill in the gaps in a way. Yeah. And initially when we we were working out like what an educational system looked like, it did include like, you know, let's just teach them the bare basics, right? Let's just teach them the foundations because initially the key target was small town businesses as well as cultural institutions that were on a smaller scale that might not have a marketing team or a communications manager, but had really, you know, great stories to share. And so initially it was just like, let's just give them the bare basics And as we thought about it and brainstormed online, there's a plethora of courses that'll teach you this, Mm -hmm. right? But they're slim to none that will go into detail and take you through not only the technical framework, but teach you some of the pitfalls that you can run into if you're not well-educated on just general culture. Yeah. For me, that's what really separates this developing program from the rest. And that's what makes me the most excited. Now, is the brand sequence kind of part of this education arm or is that something different through Tabernacle? We went back and forth. So me and my team were talking about it and we went back and forth. I'm like, should we lump everything under this platform, the brand sequence? Right. But we don't want to put ourselves in one, you know, just have like limit ourselves either. So we'll have separate, you know, one-off discussions called Tabernacle Talks. And so that, as we look back at what we did with Natalie Kim, like that falls under Tabernacle Talks. That's for anybody who just wants to get some sort of education around history and design and advertising, no matter what space you're in, it could help you and you'll learn something. And then the brand sequence is more targeted towards business leaders and leaders who are a part of cultural institutions. We started to think about how we could develop different tracks for this. And we, when we went back to our core and that's, you know, creating racial equity, we started to think about the different industries that are historically, 
you know, historically have some sort of tension between the black community and in that industry. So restaurants, all these places that you should be able to go and relax. It's always something. Mm -hmm. And so with those programs and those courses, we will go through the framework of like what your customer experience and journey is like, but you'll also be taking a history class on how the relationships between, you know, the black community, the Latinx community, the Asian community, how those relationships have evolved from a historical lens in that industry as well. So that's kind of what separates Tabernacle Talks from the brand sequence is the brand sequence is more like a really lit business school. And the Tabernacle Talks is, you know, whatever we feel is timely. Nice. Now, I guess with doing all this education, how do you sort of see that, I guess, what's the percentage of, when you look at the business, a tabernacle as a, as a whole, like what percentage is this educational arm and what percentage is doing client work? So I think for this year, the educational arm is going to be probably like 70% going out because at this point, that's where we've been getting the most funding. That's where we feel there's the most interest and the most need because technically we're still getting clients, but not from, oh, we want to create this event or, oh, we want to you know do a, a brand project right now. But they're like, help us not mm-hmm. be racist. <laughs> so it's definitely shifting gears and we want to pour as much love into it as possible. So from now, you know, until the end of Q4, we're definitely pouring a lot into building out the brand sequence. It might shift. It might change as the platform actually gets established from launch to see like how it's received. Who knows? Like we might end up going 50-50 by the end of the year. But for now, the educational platform is the priority. Now, prior, you know, to us talking... You mentioned wanting to talk about securing funding, which personally I am very interested in. I'm sure people that are listening are super interested in that as well. So I want to definitely dive into that. Like when you look at Tabernacle, what are the next steps of growth for the studio? And how do you work on securing the funding to make that growth happen? Yeah. So I got my first bit of funding actually through the COVID relief funds. And so it was really weird. I'm not going to lie because I never had a plan to even secure funding or think I would need it. I had a decent amount of savings coming in, but when COVID hit and then like all the projects started to drop off or get put on hold, it's like, okay, wait, how do we pay everyone? And so that was just my first consideration or even being open to funding because I'll say this, I think a lot of times as black businesses in general, we get a little apprehensive about funding depending on where it's coming from. So like taking out a loan can be a little scary. Mm -hmm. It can also be a little, a bit biased. And so you don't want to put yourself into too much debt. And so when COVID happened, all of a sudden there were these grants um, and NAACP is part, just partnered with Beyonce to create a grant for small businesses. It, it's just all these different grants started popping up that you didn't have to pay back. And I think it made things a bit more 
less scary for me because I just have a big issue with getting into debt. And then recently I applied for a grant with a, with a platform called Create and Cultivate that focuses on women-owned businesses. And that was my first time really going and like live pitching my idea and all that in front of a huge audience. I was just so nervous. And when I received that one, it really just kind of lit a bigger fire under me to start looking for more grants and, you know, just really capitalizing on this opportunity and figuring out how to funnel that, you know, into creating change through my work. So I think if anything, it's also helped me refine the strategy for Tabernacle. So I would say like if anyone's considering pursuing funding, you know, have a clear mission, don't rely on your website or anything digital per se in terms of something that people would have to go and access. Literally everything I've done has been organizing all my thoughts and my goals into presentation decks and putting them in a Google folder and just sending that Google folder out because people don't want to have to navigate and look for everything. And I feel like we get, especially as creators, we get so hyped about having a popping, you know, website, but investors and people who are, you know, reviewing the grant applications, they just want to know the facts. Yeah. Give me the facts quick and dirty. And so keeping it, you know, it like, Five to 10 pages is really great. But having, you know, some backup information that they want to know more, I found that was really helpful, like for Create and Cultivate. I submitted, I went by their guidelines. They, they, the requirement was like a five slide presentation. And then when I made it to the semifinalist round, they were like, you know, they kept saying, you know, if you have anything else that would help us make our decision or help us guide us in making the decision, let us know. I was like, okay, okay. I was like, what do they need? And I just went back and I looked at what I gave them and just expanded on it and made it a bit more clear, showed like the resources that I had behind me to make things happen. And I think that's really important as well to just show how you're equipped to execute what you're trying to do. And also outlining what impact you've already created is really important when you're trying to secure funding and really trying to set yourself apart from the rest. Now, I guess aside from these like two particular grants, is there, are there other ways that you've worked on securing funding or has this been pretty much it? So I've been in talks with VC investors around the brand sequence. I'll be honest, like I'm still learning about that process and it does intimidate me a lot. So I would say, really educate yourself and educate yourself about the implications of taking certain certain pieces of funding. So we look at some of like Spotify, they had their grant, but there was a big challenge with a lot of people that they were going to have to essentially give up their rights Mm -hmm. to their work. So you want to be very careful. Like if you're comfortable with that, go for it. If you're comfortable and you trust whoever you're working with, go for it. But if you're really trying to make sure you you maintain ownership of your work, and I think that's so important, especially for the Black community, you really want to be careful in the certain situations you step in. So if you're pursuing any type of investment type funding where you'll have an expectation to deliver um, you really want to be strategic in how you're going to go into that because that's a like that's not a short term thing. Everything I've applied for thus far is they cut the check and they want to update. They want progress updates, but 
with these greater pieces of funding, when you get into the hundreds and the half a million and all that stuff, it does get more complex. So you really want to be well-versed in navigating that. More money, more problems. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't need no problems. Right. I have what I need. I have the tools I need and I'm good. So I just, I keep it just at the foundation level. Now I want to talk just, you know, briefly about your, your advertising experience. You know, you, prior to moving back to Texas where you're at right now, you were in Chicago and you worked for like a couple of the top agencies in the ad industry. You worked for Sapient and you worked for Digitas. Like mm-hmm. overall, can you tell me what those experiences were like? They were very enlightening. I don't think there was anything I learned in school that really prepared me for what I encountered. The first job I had at Digitas and If anything, I would say I walked away with a lot. uh, That was actually the job I got laid off from. Um, But I walked away with a lot of empowerment and a clear focus, even going through the layoff process. It really taught me a lot about navigating the one, the corporate space, because I'm from the country. I was born and raised in Port Arthur, Texas, and grew up in Beaumont, Texas. So coming into corporate America was definitely a big culture shock for me. And in dealing with, you know, the bias in those spaces, because no matter how hard these agencies have tried in the past, it's still very tainted. And you see that it's very apparent now because of all these initiatives that are popping up. Right. And so um, they I, I would say, like, holistically, a lot of the agency world has just a lot more work to do. But. On the positive note, you know, it really helped me refine how I presented my work. I get a lot of, you know, kids reaching out to me. I know they're adults by calling kids, but reaching out to me, you know, to review their portfolios and everything. And when I came into the industry, a lot of my work was like underground hip hop flyers, like big pokey ESG, like, oh, yeah. So I was like all deep into underground hip hop. And I made nonstop promotional pieces when I was in college and in grad school. And so when you looked at my portfolio, it was interesting. And I don't know <laughs> who hired me now, you know, unless, and I think maybe that, that experience is actually helping me because it helps me craft how I respond to people who reach out, especially black creatives, because you don't want to deter them. So if someone gave me a chance and helped me refine my work refine my taste. And I'm realizing like, that's really the bigger thing is going through that that first year and a half at Digitas and acquiring some mentors, both at the agency and in other agencies as well as I was navigating that time, it really helped me refine my taste. It also helped me a lot in learning how to present and share my work and navigate clients and convince clients to believe in what I was you know, sharing with them. And then the second job at Sapient was incredibly empowering. Really, the only reason I left was because, you know, my dad had passed away and time just became like super urgent for me. And I was like, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. And so at Sapient, I had a lot of diverse leadership. My boss, you know, was a woman and honestly, like having a diverse, you know, spectrum of people to work with and and that leadership, it changed 
how I viewed the industry because after my first job, I was like, I don't know about this. This is like hard. And it's like, they don't like, no one really wants to shift and people don't see the value in certain things that mean a lot to me. And so I don't know if I want to be here. I don't even know if I ever want to like touch the industry after I leave. Mm. And so getting there, you know, and having such a, a different experience and just a very diverse experience on like the different projects I worked on. I got a chance to work on Dove from a conceptual standpoint. And after I finished that project, you know, and moved on, what I had started actually ended up supporting what's now called the Crown Act. And that was a partnership with Dove. And oh, Champions. nice. Yeah. So Sapient was definitely like a pivotal point for me because it reminded me, one, you can't judge every agency or team by one or two bad experiences. You can definitely identify the challenges, but it's really up to you to make that experience something that's beneficial to yourself. And it's possible in extreme circumstances. Yes, get out. But if you have the the energy to keep pushing, you can really craft it into something that turns into something great like the Crown Act. And just for people that don't know, sorry to interrupt, but like for people that don't know what the Crown Act is, it's a law that prohibits like discrimination basically based on your hairstyle or your hair texture, something that I think disproportionately affects black folks, particularly black women. Exactly. And it's like, why do we have to do this? And so that whole experience was really enlightening for me because that was also the first time I had a black creative leader. I was working in the Chicago office and they brought in an external team into the New York office. So my team actually loaned me out to Dove. And that was my first time having a black creative director and a black female creative director. And it was a whole world of difference. And it really just left, like, left me charged up and empowered. And I was like, I can do this. Like, I can stay in the industry on my terms and really make an impact. Now, is that kind of where Blacks and Advertising grew out of, both of those experiences? So Blacks and Advertising grew out of my first few weeks at my job, my first few months at my job, and people still walking around me every time the elevator opened (laughs) and not thinking I was getting out on the hip floor. I was tired. And I was like, (laughs) I need some inspiration. I need to read the stories of those before me. And so I just started... I always had a passion for archival museums. You know, my parents really instilled in me a value of history. And so I just started collecting names. It was just a a one-off Black History Month project. And then all of a sudden I started getting emails like, oh, how do I join? Or do you have a chapter here? And it was never my intention to like create some sort of membership platform or anything like that. But I did see a big value in preserving really important narratives and making sure those didn't disappear. And Mm -hmm. so the following month, I remember I started like focusing just on women for Women's History Month. And then after that, it evolved and I started to focus on what can I do to empower black ad professionals? Like what are some gaps aside from not seeing ourselves? And aside from not knowing, you know, the deep historical impact that we've had on the industry, 
what else is there? And so for my lens, it was funding. So black professionals in advertising tend to be the ones who don't get the right funding to go to the necessary conferences that'll help elevate them, get the necessary continuing education that'll help them. Like I've been in circumstances where I've had, you know, a career director tell me when I was asked, like, how can I improve? I was told, well, that stuff just is just hard to learn. Like no guidance, no mm. direction to a general assembly course, nothing. And so as I look at what Blacks and advertising is evolving into, it's still not necessarily a membership platform, but we're focusing over the past two years, we focus more on funding as opposed to just narratives. And then during this period, we just paused everything for a while and we're reshifting to actually create a board. I wanted to have a board a couple of years ago, but it just didn't pan out. The timing wasn't right. But now that there's this renewed interest and passion and I've, I've had people reaching out, now we're working on creating a board. And my goal and hope going forward is that we maintain you know, that mission of preserving narratives and funding, but that I start to bring in more people to help share different perspectives. Because right now it's just coming from Candace's mind and what Candace's what Candace thinks. Mm-hmm. So I really want to make sure there are more voices on that platform to just really elevate it and move it forward. And now we're, you know, starting to see a lot of brands and even some agencies like speak out about racial injustice. I think that's something we've seen within the past maybe month or so. But also what's happening is that employees at those brands and agencies are like, wait a minute, while we have your attention, let's talk about how you're not doing well for black people here. And there's been like no shortage of different initiatives out there, particularly in advertising to advance Mm -hmm. black talent. I think the one that I saw most recently was 600 and rising. Of course, there's there's ad color. Like you're on the advisory board for ad color. Like, do you see all of these separate efforts moving the needle in the industry? The one thing that concerns me is understanding the structure and how to proceed with those things. So we do see a lot of initiatives popping up, but I challenge everyone who's a part of some sort of initiative to think about the long game. So it's easy to say, like, just for example, outside of advertising, it's easy to say, take a statue down, but then what's next? And how do you engage? Like, for example, in my city, we took a statue down, but I'm working on a proposal to actually implement a more diverse educational curriculum for students. Because I realized like people didn't even know who the statue was. No one went to this park and there was a greater gap. So I really challenge anyone who is just starting something right now to really look at the long game and have some core demands. So it's great to do the shock, the things that add shock value but you really want to you know, have a clear idea of what you're going to create and build that changes the system. Mm-hmm. And that's what I feel Ad Color is really doing well. Next year will be the 15th anniversary of Ad Color. And since its inception, and for those who don't know, Ad Color is an organization 
that actually facilitates and champions, you know, talent that has long gone, you know, unrecognized. It started out as just an awards show and it's expanded to cover people of color, the pride community. We're expanding more programming to help support efforts around the disabled community. And so it's really important to just look at the long game. So you maintain the consistency in the fire. And I also think it's really important to understand the concept of collaboration. Like for me, for example, for Blacks in Advertising, there are just a lot of spaces we will not go in because there are other organizations doing it very well. And I'd rather collaborate with them than try and duplicate efforts too. So I think as we progress forward, I think what what's being done right now with getting people, organizations to release their numbers and all that, it's great. But we need to also think about how are we going to change the system in the long run as well. What like really keeps you motivated and inspired to like continue this work? It's just seeing the young people coming in. With Ad Color Eye on the advisory board, I focus on the Futures program. So working with that particular program, I see a lot of young talent. To be a future, you are between one and three years into your career. And so it really has driven my determination in everything I do, just working with each cohort every year. So seeing them come in year after year with this fire inside of them, all these unique and inventive ideas that they've implemented in their own companies, being a part of that, it's one, very inspiring because I was a future in 2014. And when I look at the classes now, I'm like, I wouldn't have made it. I wouldn't have made the cut. (laughs) Every year they get better and better. And so that's really what keeps me motivated is seeing that hope come in every time my light starts to dwindle a little bit, seeing that hope and then just hearing, you know, how the futures program has helped elevate them and shape them and being a part of maintaining that community. It's that that's really what keeps me going. Now, you mentioned, you know, kind of earlier on when I asked you about how you were doing kind of throughout this pandemic, you were saying that you were you are thriving, which is a, a great was a great feeling to have. What do you kind of appreciate most about your life right now? I appreciate the ability to be content with what I have. On a personal note, when I first came to the industry, you know, I wasn't as idealistic or mission driven. You know, I had some mission based goals, but that wasn't the end all be all. But experiencing the things that I've experienced in the industry, in my life, it's just put me in this space of being humble and thankful and grateful for what I've been building for myself. Because I know everyone can't do that. Everyone doesn't have the ability to have the freedom that I have right now creatively. I can get on here and yak away. And I just have no repercussions. <laughs> it's like, I'm not like, at this one, I'm like, I'm not scared. Anybody, I'm a Christian. I'm like, if you can't take me out and get me to heaven, like it, it doesn't matter to me. So <laughs> I'm just like super content with my life. I'm super thankful to where God has placed me. I'm thankful for the time I have with my family. I didn't have this. Like I was such a workaholic. I was always trying to prove myself, prove that you know, I belong here. Like, I'm not just a diversity hire. I didn't just come through a diversity program. 
Like I belong here. I'm not a charity case, right? And this period of time, I've really realized my worth. And, you know, I'm in my thirties and that like, I think for some people that's kind of shocking, you know, like it took you that long, but sometimes it can. And I've truly just realized my worth and the direction I want to go in. But most importantly, you know, just having time to really soak into my faith and with my family, like it's just been amazing. So I'm just really thankful for where I'm at right now. If you could like sit down with your, with your teenage self, like, I don't know, like say your 16 year old self, like what would you want to tell yourself to prepare you for the future? I would say, girl, leave that man alone. Don't worry about him. <laughs> then I would say, uh, just reach for the stars. Like the only, my mom always used to tell me the most anyone can tell you is no. And when I started implementing that concept, whether that be from price negotiations, salary negotiations, life negotiations, when I was younger, that sounded silly. But now I realize like the most anyone can tell you is no. And you just find a different plan and you just go a different way. I'm curious. I can hear the joy in your voice when you talk about like being free and being able to kind of run your business how you want to and like where you're at in life right now, which I think is is really great. What do you want your legacy to be? I want to have a living legacy, <laughs> but I would say I want people to recognize me as someone who has shown that you can be successful and care because I think many people view success as having to step on people or get around or cut somebody out to move forward, but you don't have to do that. I'd also want my legacy to be Candace was someone who rebuilt communities. She was the one who went back for the forgotten and helped build them back up. So I think if anything, that that would be the most important piece. Now, we have sort of an ongoing theme that I've asked every guest here this year, which is sort of around the theme of like Black Futures 2020. So I'll ask you this question. How are you using your skills to help build a more equitable future? So right now I'm actually pouring a lot into understanding urban design and architecture. For my sabbatical, I was like, oh, I'm going to focus on all aspects of design. And um, when I was growing up, my parents were like really, my mom was definitely into remodeling. My dad was into doing all the work that she needed done. And so I've always had a, a big passion for architecture, but never really pursued it. And when I moved back home, I started purchasing property like in the old neighborhood I grew up in and then the other predominantly black neighborhood that's kind of gone down quite a bit over the past few decades. And so now I'm just focused on like, what is the thing that they're saying? Buying back the block. Mm -hmm. So that's my focus is buying back those areas and implementing design solutions, both from a visual level because I do believe that the environment you grow up in definitely impacts your perspective on life, but then also design just from a business standpoint and how do we reinfuse business and, and commerce within those neighborhoods when all the storefronts and everything has shut down. So that's what, what I've been focusing on for 2020. 
where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like it's, it's 2025. What are you working on? Oh, hopefully by then I am working on a ranch. Cause I hmm. do want to, my, on my mom's side, my grandpa was a farmer and I've always had a big passion for food equity as well. And so by then, I would really love to have this beautiful Black-owned ranch and maybe a co-op or a grocery store of some sort, like some sort of chain in underserved communities uh, to help, like, essentially help reduce food deserts and provide really whole eating. Hmm. And maybe I would be buried. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with that. Look, it's five years from now, which I mean, right now in the middle of this pandemic feels like an eternity away in some ways, but yeah. who I knows? Sister, I, like, I tell my sister, I need a co-founder. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, just to kind of, you know, wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and your work and the studio and everything? How can they follow you online? I'm most active on Instagram. You can find me at Candace D as in Danielle Queen. And then my studio is at tabernacle.inc, I-N-C. And my website is tabernacle.studio, no com, because we're cool. Okay. <laughs> I, li- I like those new kind of end domains like that. So tabernacle. <laughs> That studio. Awesome. Well, Kansas Queen, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Really, like I can feel your enthusiasm and your energy behind your work and behind the studio. It it reminds me so much of like when I started my studio and like when things were really starting to get popping in those first few years, like there's a palpable energy that I think you bring to the work. And it's it's fueled, I think, not just by the experiences that you've had in the industry, but also this drive to really kind of change, not just the industry, but also change people's perception of kind of what folks can do, particularly black people in this field. And so I'm really excited to see all of your initiatives happen. I'm excited to see them happen. I'm excited to see what else comes next out of Tabernacle Studio. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Big thanks to Candace Queen, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Candace and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm